Um, hello, uh, I'm Kung Vip Do. I'm currently CEO of Biopharma, which is a biotech company developing drugs for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Prior to this, I've led the global strategy group for all of Samsung and was the chief strategy officer for Merck, Tyco Electronics, and Lenovo. And prior to all of that, I spent 17 years at consulting for McKinsey & Company, where I helped build the healthcare and high-tech practices for the firm. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Gung. Uh, this question might uh, be a curveball because, uh, you know, it's early in the morning and I'm not sure if you've got a chance to, to check out the questions, but um, what, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you these days? To be honest, I'm reestablishing my um, Vietnamese roots. You know, my family left Vietnam at the end of the war when I was nine years old. Um, and I started really focused on learning English, doing, going to school here, building my career. And all along, um, I've just really focused on just doing whatever it takes to kind of continue to progress. And in the circles that I traveled, there were not too many Vietnamese nationals or many Vietnamese people along the way. So I just really did not have much of a connection to Vietnam as I was growing up, building my career and so forth. And it's only been in the years that I started traveling work to Vietnam for work. You know, Samsung is still one of the largest companies in Vietnam. So I was actually responsible for some of our work there. So I started traveling more to Vietnam, um, reestablishing connections there. And most recently, with my joining the board of Fulbright University of Vietnam, this is the deepest, um, the best opportunities I have to essentially reconnect to Vietnam. When, when you were nine and you first um, arrived or you first left the country, did you ever um, look back, I mean, in the following years and sort of um, think about like the connection that you had with Vietnam or was it just like looking forward to survive and, and, and progress? It was very much looking forward to survive, right? Um, my family arrived in the US. Um, we did not have many friends. We did not have much money. I did not speak English, right? So it was very much starting over. Um, for me, it was learning English, right? And I did what most people at that age do when we don't have a lot of money. I just watched a lot of, as much TV as possible and read anything I could get my hands on. And this was happening back in the days when modern immunology was beginning to take roots. When my family arrived when I was nine, it was really all about looking forward. You know, we arrived with very little money. We had no friends. I did not speak English at the time and we settled in Oklahoma. So for me, the first priority was learning English. And I did what most people in that situation do, which is read as much as I could get my hands on and watch as much TV as possible. And this was happening when modern immunology, as, as we know it, was taking place. So I was reading about this, I was intrigued, started asking lots of different questions, which eventually led me to start doing medical research when I was 14 years old. Wow. And um, I eventually went on to Dartmouth College where I got a um, double major in biochemistry and economics and I got an MBA as well, all in five years because I was in a hurry um, because I'd accepted a slot at Stanford Medical School to finish my training there. 
Right. So as you can see, I've really focused on just moving ahead with learning, progressing and so forth and doing what I did. There were just not that many Vietnamese individuals um, along the way. Right. At 14, who are your influences? Did your parents sort of inspire you to, to go down this route or? Frankly, it was just TV. Right. My dad, when we came over, my dad worked for General Motors on assembly line. My mom worked multiple jobs with secretary and, and so forth. And so it was just I was the oldest um, and it was just motivation of just in, intrigued of what I saw on TV and was reading about. My, my brother and I watched a lot of TV and immunology never showed up on our uh, <laughs> on our radar. So what gives? Um, it was in the news. I mean, back in those days, I loved watching the news. I still do watching, um, watching and reading the news. So that modern immunology was a very big deal in the news back in those days. So did you end up going to uh, Stanford for medical school? I did not. I ended up not going because while in business school, I realized I loved the knowledge of medicine, but not necessarily the practice of the research of it. Yeah. And McKinsey, which is a large consulting firm, was building a new healthcare practice at the time. So I ended up going to McKinsey, um, which gave me an opportunity to kind of do things that most people would not work on. You know, I worked on launching new drugs. I worked in R&D. I've worked um, creating medical devices, launching new surgical procedures, new diagnostics, worked in hospitals, so forth which was great training for what set me up later on. I mean, eventually I became a chief strategy officer for Merck, um, which helped me allow, allowed me to essentially set priorities for the company, stretch strategies for the company. And along the way, I've also founded three biotech companies, right? Um, all in very rare lysosomal storage disorders, all based upon my love of knowledge, but not necessarily having gone to medical school. Right. But I can imagine uh, the disappointment that your mom and dad, you know, short-sighted at the time, right? I mean, I, wh what was going on th with the dynamics of your relationship with them? Oh, one of the most difficult conversation um, out there, right? Because from my parents' point of view, we hit the jackpot, right? <laughs> who doesn't want their child to be a doctor? And if you go to medical school, who doesn't want their child to go at to Stanford. Stanford, right? And so here it was. Uh, and I'd gotten in um, and wow. so forth, and scholarships and so on. And yet I was throwing it all away from what most people would say. But my parents, interestingly, after that phone call, after I told them what I was going to do, there was a long minute or so of silence. And they basically says, well, you know best, right? Mm. And then they just, it, it's my life and I know best. Um, and so you go and do what you think is, is the right thing. And frankly, that's exactly what I'm doing with my own children now, right? My oldest daughter is, um, is now a junior at Dartmouth College, right? So she went to Dartmouth thinking that she wanted to go to be a medical doctor as well. Um, but I told her, it's just like, it's your life. I mean, she asked for, for thoughts and guidance and so forth. Like my answer was, it's your life. You have to figure out what you really want to do. And thankfully she figured out that she doesn't want to be a medical doctor. <laughs> She'd rather get a PhD instead, which is a fabulous thing that she figured it out. Right. But then what was the turning point for you, uh, in that decision? What flipped you the other way? 
Well, um, it is ultimately for me, not going to medical school was really pursuing what I was really interested in doing, which is I was interested in that applying the knowledge to what could be used for instead of just practicing helping patients one-on-one. And I think that really um, over the years, I think people, we all have benefited because of that, right? Because I could have worked on as a surgeon on one patient at a time versus um, working on drugs that um, are saving millions of people at a time, right? You know, going through, um, you know, medical school, which is in my mind, very technical, very uh, procedural oriented. And then, you know, MBA is also kind of the same. But when we look at a, uh, a university like Fulbright, I often wonder, you know, I had a liberal arts education at USC here in Southern California. And I often wonder, you know, from your perspective, how important is that sort of education for society? Uh, to me, my liberal arts education at Dartmouth was foundational, right, to what, everything I've done. I believe a liberal arts education fundamentally helps you learn to think, right? And a place like Dartmouth, the interdisciplinary nature of it, it helps you to think in an integrated manner, how one thing over here could actually tie together with another thing over here to work together to make a difference. And that's what I really learned from Dartmouth. I am who I am today, where I am today, all because of Dartmouth for several reasons. One is it taught me how to think. Two, it gave me the opportunities, right? It gave me the scholarships, the loans, and open the doors to allow me to go on to business school, to go on and do all of these things. So I think a liberal arts education is the foundation to everything. And it's from there that you build upon it to become whoever you want to be in life. Yeah, because uh, my, my brother has been teaching uh, at the university level in Vietnam and a few other of our friends uh, that came from California had moved to Vietnam and um, in the early days, they said it was very difficult because students that were coming in were really just all about rote memory in high school. And the creative sort of the creative muscle was not really apparent in the students that were, you know, in the early days, but it's changing a bit. And I think that's what um, this is reflecting um, a little bit more emphasis on humanities and this critical thinking. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say it's uh, that your brother thinks it's changing, right? Because I think um, it's the critical thinking that will help move the world forward. I, I learned a lot from Dartmouth and there is, my life essentially has been driven by two Dartmouth quotations, if you will. With one of which was from a Dartmouth um, president that extolled generations of Dartmouth men and women to go and make a difference in the world because he believed that there is nothing so great, so difficult in the world that reasonable men, great men and women cannot go and solve, right? And I just don't believe you can solve new problems in the world by regurgitating, by mm. redoing, by going down the paths that have already been taken. And there are real, real big problems in the world, right? And it needs great leaders. It needs great thinkers. It, great, it needs people who can really solve problems to go and solve it. 
Yeah, but often that fear of taking the, you know, um, the path of not going to Stanford Medical School, that's, you know, that's ingrained in our culture to take the safe path. That's right. There in the second quote from Dartmouth, it comes from <laughs> Robert Frost, right? And the quote is from a poem, right? Um, Two paths diverged in the woods, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that's made all the difference in the world, right? And I think we can, there are many, many followers in the world that are very happy to essentially take a path that has been prescribed, that's easy to follow, and that what needs to be done is known. I have never been that kind of a person, right? I seek things that have no answers because I want to go and figure it out. And I think life is more exciting, more interesting if you don't know what will happen, right? And I think if you seek the things that you have not, you don't know how to do, um, that will make you a better person. And this is actually a key tenet of my own personal leadership approach, right? People who work with me, who work for me and so forth, I make sure that they are working on things that they are uncomfortable with, right? I hire really, really smart, bright people and I put them in situations that they have not seen and make them uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable is when you're working hardest, you're trying your best, you're thinking the hardest and somewhere along the way, you'll get much better results and you'll advance the company, you advance humanity and so forth, All right? So a lot of resumes and CVs come across your desk and you're making decisions. Um, they're all high caliber uh, people that come, come by. What, what are the several things that make you change your mind and pick people to, to come on to the team? Interestingly, I read resumes in a way that, um, and frankly, admittedly, is just backwards. I read resumes from the bottom up, right? What I mean by that is if I get a bunch of resumes from Harvard or from MIT or Stanford and so forth, at the very, if you read top down, it's usually academic achievements, right? Right. They're all the same. Right. They're all smart people who've accomplished <laughs> great things. Right. Right. And then next comes work accomplishments, work activities, and so forth. What chances are, if you have great academics who have people who have great academic track record, they've gone and did great work. They all went to McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, right? Apple and Google and Microsoft and so forth, right? So again, they're all the same in many ways. So what makes people different? What really truly really make them stand out is the stuff at the bottom of the mm. resume. So I always read a resume at the bottom, the personal interests, right? And what I look for are people who have multi-year commitments to something. I don't care what that is. It could be volunteering. It could be different leadership activities. It could be, you know, it's dedication, mm. right? It's, I'm looking for people who make a difference, right? So ideally people who have led in various manner because they can, 
right? And so people, but unfortunately, this is the section where nobody really spends attention or spend time to. And when they do, they list mundane things, which is skilled in Microsoft, skilled in PowerPoint, skilled in this, that, or the other, versus this is an opportunity to help tell your story. This is the part of the resume that makes your personal characteristics come alive. And I hope it's much more than just the fact that you know how to use PowerPoint. (laughs) Have you ever been wrong? Often, I'm wrong all the time, right? And I think if you're not wrong, if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. But equally important, I admit that I don't know and I admit that I'm wrong all the time. I don't think there's a day that goes by without me saying, I don't know something. Right. By doing that, you set the tone and the tenor for everyone else around you to absolutely work in the same way, which is like, you don't have to hide anything. Right. I'm so sorry. I should have uh, said the question differently. Have you ever been wrong in the hiring um, by, you know, looking at the resume at the bottom and, you know, have you ever picked wrong people? Of course. Oh, oh, We are not infallible. Yeah. Right? And so I would say that probably looking back, 20% of the people I've hired, I probably shouldn't have. Right. And it could be senior people, or it could be um, junior people, entry level positions, as well as very senior people. Right. And it's, it's very difficult to have to um, hire and then fire very quickly a senior executive. But I do that. Right. Because one thing I've learned along the way is your gut instincts about people matter Mm. and the longer you wait to act on gut instincts the worse the situation will be because it just festers you have mentored uh, a few people and uh, there's been some notable people can we talk about uh, that um sure right Uh, mentoring i think mentoring is an interesting word I, i don't think i quote unquote, mentored a lot of people. What I've done over the years is I just help people be the best of themselves. I provide the air cover and allow them to rise to the occasion that they truly have within themselves. I understand Cheryl Sandberg uh, was one of your, um, somebody that worked for you. Um, We worked together at McKinsey when she was very early on in her career. And anyone who knows Cheryl knows just how intrinsically this person is. She is intrinsically a phenomenal, phenomenal problem solver. She's a great people leader, and she is just a nice person. When you have people like that, just put them in the right environment, create the room for them to shine and they will rise to the occasion. And that's Cheryl's done time and time and time over again. What do you think creates people like that? Oh, that's a great question. I wish I knew, right? I think part of it is what we started earlier. It's just a belief and a well, a, a grounding in a liberal arts, right? Mm. Because I think a lot of leaders ask questions they're naturally inquisitive. And if they don't know it, if they see things 
that they don't know. And if they don't know, they go and solve it. Right? They will figure it out. That's one. What also makes people like that are fundamentally someone who care about people. Because I don't think any one of us succeed by ourselves. We get ahead on the backs and the shoulders of others around us, right? And that's why it's so important to just really look after people. And Cheryl is a great people leader. She and I are very direct people, right? And we would just absolutely give the feedback or the comments or, um, that's needed without holding back, right? But she's just much nicer than I am. <laughs> I've seen her do that. And then after a meeting, walk around and give somebody a hug that she just gave very tough um, feedback to. I, I don't do that. <laughs> that that's got to be a, a woman thing, right? I think. Well, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. but it, that's just who she is, right? I'm glad to hear that. Uh, what are some of the, the major turning points in your career that you think that cemented, you know, certain positions throughout your, your life? You know, a key turning point for me was turning 40. Right? Um, by this point in time, I'd been McKinsey, at McKinsey for 17 years. I was a senior partner at the firm right then. And not too many people get to be a senior partner at McKinsey, right? And so every, the conventional wisdom is just stay, continue to do what I was doing. But I just couldn't imagine doing that. I didn't want to run an office and practice and so forth. I just love working with my clients, but I just couldn't imagine doing the same thing over and over again. Right? So again, I took the road less traveled. I left, not too many people leave McKinsey after 17 years as a senior partner, but that's made all the difference in the world. Right. So since then I've been a serial chief strategy for all these companies. And I think I've had a, um, in many ways, a lot more fun and a lot more personal impact because of it. But at 40, that's scary. Um, isn't it to just abandon ship and turn left and do something that's not in your room? Um... Yes and no. Um, I think we all just need to have more confidence in ourselves, right? I don't know what it is about companies and jobs and so forth that just make us all insecure, right? We're all insecure about whether or not we're gonna get this next promotion, whether we can make this next job, whether we can make take this next step. I just ask all of us, right? And I coach a lot of my team members, just have greater confidence in ourselves, <laughs> right? We're all very successful people, right? We have gotten to where we are in life, not by accident, right? We're here because of something. So if you just have confidence in yourself, you can go and do anything, right? You can just go and do anything. Yeah, that's a that's a really um, subtle um, point, but we as humans are sort of programmed to think differently. We there's this natural insecurity that is kind of pre-programmed in all of us, no matter where how high we get, right? Absolutely, it's just and again, I, I just suffer from. 
thinking differently, I guess. <laughs> I want to suffer from that. <laughs> but I, I just just have greater confidence in yourself and your ability, right? And I think that also then lead to um, another benefit that I, I think has some substantial health benefits, which is I don't worry. I'm mm. just don't worry about anything um, because worry about the things you can do something about, right? And if you know that has something to be done, go and do it, go and fix it, go and do something. Don't worry about the things that you cannot control or do something about it, right? So I just don't worry about those things, right? And then that leads to, I'm not anxious about anything. I'm just generally a happier person, I think, by just not worrying, right? I mean, that sounds like the, the major tenet of like practicing Zen Buddhism, right? Just... <laughs> Do the oh, best I, you I can. don't know. Maybe I should look. I should look at the Zen. <laughs> Zen. <laughs> What's well, one of their uh, one of their sayings is uh, um, kind of forget. It's basically you do as much as you can and leave nothing. You know, don't worry about it. If you're doing everything you can, yep. then there's nothing left to worry about. Yeah, I, I forget right. the exact. I used to bust it out all the time, but I forget it. So I I wanted to go chronologically, but I you know we don't have a whole lot of time. So I'm just going to kind of uh, jump, jump around. You know, I, I really wonder um, in my mind when um, somebody says they're the chief strategic officer of a company like Samsung, what exactly happens? What are the things that you like? What kind of things do you plan for the company? Sure. It could, it really comes down to, I believe, portfolio management resource allocation and making sure that we take the right tactical steps. I'll give you an example. When I first suggested that Samsung should acquire um, Harman, everybody looked at me like I had horns, right? This was a crazy idea. But uh, it's in my mind, it solved two problems at the same time. We were trying to build an automotive business Right. Most importantly, we were trying to get our semiconductors right, into automotive right, and trying to build a new sales channel, sales force and all of that stuff from scratch to serve a completely new um, end market was too difficult. Right. And then the other is that Samsung has great consumer electronics technology, great audio technology. We just do not have the brands known for high-end audio. So acquiring Harman solves both problems at once, right? And so it's about figuring out where we need to go, figuring out how to do it, right? In the Harman case, go and make an acquisition. In what Samsung is doing in biologics and biotechnology, it is building from scratch and going and hiring all the best people that we can to do so, right? So that's some of what I do. The other is much more tactical. For example, I was convinced that the, our strategy for how to compete in certain markets were just wrong, right? And therefore, it is then working with the leadership team to change the basis of competition. It could be how do we price? How, how do we think about product portfolio? How do we think about high-end versus mid versus low-end products and so forth? So a lot of it is around that. It's portfolio optimization, 
allocating resources to the things that we do and making sure that tactical actions follow what it is that we want to do. So in a case like Harman, um, in your peripheral, you're seeing all the companies, you're seeing different uh, things pop up. But how does a company specifically like Harman show up? Does you, your underlings bring you this idea and say, hey, take a look at this, Gung, and what do you think of this? And then they bring, you know, hundreds of it um, throughout the year so you can make a decision or the team makes a decision. But or is it something that you just see magically shows up on the horizon and you go for it? Well, it's all of the above, right? There, um, part of it comes from my own ideas, from knowing the companies, knowing the people, knowing what the opportunity is, right? The other is that we conduct active scans, right? If we want to go and do something, we need to know every company that has what it is that we're looking for, whether it's the right business, the right technologies, and so forth. And there are other times where, frankly, I would work with the bankers, right, who then can go and do these scans and go and have the conversations, who then come back with me to me with the various opportunities as well, and likewise the consultants and so on, right? So you go and um, use all tools available to find the right opportunities. You know, it sounds like McKinsey has a lot to do with the way um, that this sort of, and I might be wrong, I, I just don't know, but how much of McKinsey's, uh, that experience really kind of leads the way that you think about strategy? Um, a lot, a lot, right? Because during my years at um, McKinsey, I worked on a lot of these projects, more importantly towards you know, the back last decade or so. I'm the CEO's confidants, confidant, right? So I'm there having these conversations with CEOs and helping him or her figure it out. So I learned partly on the job of being a CEO um, confidant and therefore it's thereafter, it was somewhat easy. It's like osmosis, no? Yeah. And how big is the consultant culture um, in Vietnam now? I think it's growing. Um, McKinsey is there now. BCG is very active there. I think um, companies in Vietnam is beginning to learn to use consultants for what consultants are able to do, right? Um, I think Vietnam is probably a decade or two behind where China was in use of consultants and how to actually turbocharge the growth of the industry. Wow. A right? decade or two? Yeah. Yeah, that's many the, pretty far behind. Well, you know, wow. China, China really started <laughs> growing the market, the economy a decade or two ago, right? Speaking of another country, Samsung is Korean, right? How much of the Korean culture is caked into a company like Samsung? Or, you know, God, I hate giving these two uh, ways of answering, but I think of either they go by this Korean handbook uh, in their cultural play uh, playbook, or um, are they more, you know, agnostic, culturally agnostic, and they, uh, you know, operate sort of um, from a consulting, you know, ABC? Um, this is where Samsung struggles a lot. This is what I tried to work on a lot at Samsung, but failed. Right. Samsung fundamentally now is still a Korean company that operates globally. We sell a lot of products around the world, 
but leadership-wise, we're still anchored in Korea. That's why for seven years, literally, I commuted back and forth between New Jersey and Seoul every other week, because all the decision, all all the, the leadership was in Korea. And Samsung would send out expats, right, Korean nationals to all of the different subsidiaries, all the different parts around the world. And there are not too many subsidiaries around the world that has that is led by a local national. And I view that as a great failure. In a place like the United States, in a place like the UK, Germany, and so forth, there is great local talent. And the fact that we have not been able to groom local leadership is a real problem. Real problem, not because we're not able to groom talent. Real problem because we have difficulty relinquishing Korean control, right? And I think that's why a lot of our good talent, when they get senior, when they can't get any further, they end up going to other companies. Well, that's a big brain suck. It is a big brain suck. And I think this is a real challenge. And I, unfortunately, I think I'm in the minority in Samsung, right? I mean, I'm the only corporate president in Samsung that's not Korean, right? And this is one of us, we we just need many more, right? That makes sense. How do you broach a topic like that uh, at the upper levels? You just have to. Well, you do. You have to broach it head on, right? And you need to orchestrate the right conversations and so forth. But it takes time for people to acknowledge, to consider and move along. And Samsung just hasn't gone through that enough of that process yet. What has the Koreans, the South Koreans done right in the last 20 years with all of the business and entertainment and the content and hardware that they produce? I think the, um, if you take Samsung, for example, Samsung has done some phenomenal things by taking advantage of whenever there is a discontinuity. I have studied great businesses going back close to 100 years. And what you find is that a great business is not the first to do something, right? It's seldom the first to do something. A great business is the one that spots when there is a discontinuity. It could be a technological discontinuity, could be a regulatory discontinuity, but there's a discontinuity and you just jump on it. You jump on it right away. You put lots of resources behind it and you capitalize on it. And if you look at Samsung in the semiconductor business, in the memory business, Samsung was not the first company to launch memory. In fact, we were very far behind Intel. But the company launched in memory right when the PC revolution hit. And so it, it took what historically been mainframes, so few machines, to an environment where memory and machines were needed everywhere, right? So the ramp was starting, and then Samsung just 
started pouring more and more and more capital behind it so that it just out-invested everyone along the way, right? And then it just, that success there allowed the company to get more capital, more talent, right? And then the same thing happened if you look at what happened with digital TV, right? I helped with digital TV in that um, discontinuity. I fell on the sword to get rid of all of the other technologies, get out of CRTs, get out of plasma, all right? And just double down and wow. triple invest in LCD. And that basically helped create the foundation so that when the FCC made the decision to take away the analog spectrum, right? And gave um, new digital spectrum to all the broadcasters and give it five years and basically set five years period where all the TV stock in the United States, and then one year later, all the TV stock in Europe had to be replaced, had to churn. And Samsung was the was only ready. company with the capacity to do that. It took advantage of um, discontinuity, in this case, a regulatory discontinuity, and just threw talent, resource, and capital at it. Right? And that's what Samsung has done over and over again with cell phone and so forth. But that's the entire South Korean sort of ethos or the way they've been doing it is you're, you're saying even in the content game that, that they spot that discontinuity? We did, at Samsung specifically, we did not, right? We still um, struggle with content because as a company, we have not decided to be in content, right? And services and solutions and so forth. Other companies have, right? Other Korean companies have just been phenomenal with gaming, right? With um, music and movies right. and so forth, right? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, this whole Korean phenomenon uh, in the last 20 years, it's, it's so interesting. It's a tiny country. They're smaller than Vietnam. Uh, and just sort of the way they've navigated uh, in the tech world or hardware or you know making content music film it, it there's something about what they're doing that i'm constantly asking um all the vietnamese people that i that i you know cut that come on the podcast i i'm i'm curious i'm fascinated and especially somebody in your shoes who has a lot of exposure to the korean culture you know what is the difference what's the primary difference between the way the korean culture is sort of thinking about their future versus the way we are in Vietnam and the diaspora? That's a great question. It somewhat goes back to where we started about the liberal arts education and going where others have not, right? Japan before Korea. Korea is very much following the model established by Japan, right? And right now, China is following the model that helped, that Korea helped create, right? And China is beginning to out-execute Korea wow. right now. And all of these models, one is export-led, right? So you're really, and so you're essentially leveraging low-cost capital or great technology to export so that you build a local economy around it. Vietnam really hasn't committed to an export-led economy, right? It does export a lot, of course. Most of Samsung's phones are exported from Vietnam, right? Most of Nike's um, shoes are exported from Vietnam, but what else, right? 
I, and I think I don't think there is a concerted external orientation. And the real benefit of an external orientation and is that you're now having to compete on a global scale with companies that are really good, right? And therefore, if you are really intent on succeeding, you have to learn, you have to figure out how to outcompete companies that are already there on the global scale. That's what Samsung has done. That's what many Korean companies have done. And that's actually what many Chinese companies have done as well. Huawei, who would ever thought yeah. Huawei could outcompete Ericsson and Nokia in network infrastructure equipment? What has Vietnam done? I can't name a single company that has set up with that aspiration, but yet it could. Yet it could, right? Vietnam is the second largest coffee producer in the world. But name a great Vietnamese coffee company in the world, right? There are opportunities, but we just haven't set our sights or the aspirations to go and do so. That's a very encouraging answer because it, it means that we haven't even started. We haven't started. We, we haven't even have started. started. I mean, We've made shoes, we make garments, we make, uh, we export coffee, but we haven't really started. We haven't really set the, the true foundation of this export game. And now it needs to be the, the um, springboard, be, um, leapfrog beyond that, right? And so this is part of the conversations that we have at Fulbright, right? So at Fulbright, I chaired the um, academic affairs, the student academic affairs um, committee which looks among other things, our academic curriculum. And as we try to build our computer um, sciences and engineering um, majors and programs and so forth, my charge, my challenge to this team is do not recreate what the US has already done, hmm. right? Leverage it, build upon it, but focus on the technologies of the future because that's what we will need, right? Focus on things like, frankly, cybersecurity is already somewhat pretty mundane, right? But how about quantum computing, quantum and so forth? What are the things that will be important in the next decade, not the things that have been built over the last decade? Wow, that's phenomenal. But do you need to have like this previous prior step in quantum to get to quantum? Or can you just kind of laterally put a group of people to study something that hasn't been or hasn't had a foundation laid down in Vietnam yet? You know, is my question clear? Yep. Yeah, so the short answer is you beg, borrow, and steal all resources from everywhere, right? And what makes a great research-based academic university is faculty that does the right research. And we have the option, the opportunity just to go and hire the right faculty members to do the right research. It will take resources, yes, and that's why I'm on the board of working really hard to raise funds and so forth. We will have to raise the funds, we will have to hire the right people. And once you have the right faculty, right, you then that's how you jumpstart this kind of a program. 
Is Fulbright there? No, we are absolutely not there yet. We are a work in process, right? And for, but it is a great journey to be on, right? If you're a student with Fulbright or if you're a faculty member joining Fulbright. Why are you in education and not in the practical sector um, in Vietnam? Or are you? Maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Are you inside the boots on the ground um, in the business world? Or are you just really dipping your toes uh, in education first? I just believe education is the most important thing to do. I mean, I benefited from education, right? And I, I study economies over the last century. Four things always are true. Right? As com- countries and economies develop, as they get past subsistence farming, there gets to be a point when you have enough wealth, right? a GDP per capita, um, certain things, four sectors will always grow. The first is education, because every family wants their children to be better off than they they were right. The second is healthcare because everybody wants to be, be feel better and so forth. The third, believe it or not, is arts and entertainment, right? Because now that we have more wealth, we have more free time. What do we want to do with our free time, right? We want more higher quality free time. We want to travel. We want to watch movies, right? And, and so forth. So arts and entertainment is the third. And the fourth is actually the size of government. Those four things will always grow, become larger parts of GDP as economies develop. So go back to the first point about education. I fundamentally believe that the way to improve a person is to help them with a better education. And if you extend that, the way to improve a nation is through the education of its students, right? And for me, I am most proud of what I've helped do in Cambodia, right? I'm probably the largest benefactor of an organization called Caring for Cambodia, where we are now running 21 schools, educating 7,000 students in Cambodia from pre-K all the way through um, high school. And my wife and I put in place a scholarship program that now supports not only our teachers to go to college, get degrees, but also some of our graduating seniors now to go and get their college degree. And we, through that experience, <laughs> we change lives, right? We have we know that there are people who would have gone back to the farm, helped with the family farm that are now doing things you know, that they never have dreamt of before going to school and having the opportunity. I think the same is Vietnam. It's true with Vietnam. I think with Fulbright, we have the opportunity to essentially help elevate to that next level. Right, a liberal arts education that essentially brings greater openness, greater thinking, critical thinking, and so forth to help it go and build that economy of the future that we were just talking about. What led you to Cambodia? It's just a friend, right? A friend, um, her, his wife um, started the, the foundation because she went there, um, saw the abject poverty. She was just touring Angkor Wat when a little girl came up and asked her for a dollar, right? So um, Jamie um, asked this little girl, why do you want a dollar? And she got an answer that she did not expect, which is so that I could go to school. 
right? So Jamie said, I'll give you the dollar if you show me your school. As you visited the school and it was squalid, you know, third floor, it was run down, cramp, um, so forth. From that point on, Jamie said, I, I can make a difference and I'm gonna go and start. And I've been supporting that all the way to today, right? We just had a board meeting very recently. Can, can we take that model or do we need to take that model into Vietnam? Is it something that is uh, something that Vietnam needs? I think Vietnam has done a much better job with um, K through 12, right? I don't know, uh, at least, but again, I'm ignorant. I'm just not close enough. But my understanding is there are not too many kids, children lacking an education in Vietnam, right? Um, right now, we can talk about the caliber, the quality right. of the education, the content of that education, I think is probably the next step. And that's what Fulbright is really trying to do is change the content at the university level. And hopefully over time, that would change the content at the K to 12 level as well. What brought you back to Vietnam the first time? And how long had it been uh, since you left that, the, the country? Oh, you know, to me, it, Vietnam over the years just became a tourist destination, right? And my first trip back to Vietnam was about the year 2000, about 20 something years ago. My wife and I were living in Korea at the time and uh, my parents came to visit and uh, they hadn't been back to Vietnam since we left in 75. So we just went back to visit, right? And to me, and since then, um, we've gone a few times purely as tourists. And then until my work at Samsung took me back there for business. Right? And now I'm hoping to make it over to Vietnam in early March for some Fulbright work. Are you ever going to move to Vietnam to live? I don't have that in my as part of my aspirations right now. But who knows? Right? My wife needs, gets to make the call. Yeah. Is, is she Vietnamese? She is not. She is not. She is this blonde, curly-haired American that I met in Washington, D.C. She is a lawyer by training. Oh, that's wonderful, wonderful. And, it, you know, it's, um, I always find it hard to um, convince, women, you know, my mother, my wife, or women, it's, it's just harder to convince to move to Vietnam. Uh, the men, it seems like, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for men to make that transition. I always wonder why. I mean, there are women that do, do, don't mind living in Vietnam, um, American, Vietnamese American women or American women, but for the most part, they're less inclined to, to live in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, I, I've not tried to cross that, that bridge. You know, my wife and I, our plans were to retire to France, right? And um, we, we like France, we spend a lot of time in France, we want to spend more time in France as our, in our retirement years. What, what's your connection to autism? I see that uh, come up a lot in um, the work that you do. Yeah. Our son was diagnosed with autism when he was about 18 months old. And um, that changed our life. Right? Like I said, my wife was a lawyer. Um, we had just moved back to the US from Korea at that point in time. My wife in Korea was a professor of international law when the graduate schools there. So she was looking forward to getting back into practice. Um, in New Jersey, um, and then Benjamin was diagnosed. So Lori just kind of changed all of her plans, never went back um, to practice. She then just learned as much as she can about autism 
and to spend all of our time um, working with Benjamin. At two, he did not speak uh, a word. He did. He was happy to be by himself in the corner, right, playing by himself and so forth. So we just worked really, really hard. Lori especially worked really, really hard all through those years um, until now. We are we moved to Miami um, this past year so that Benjamin can go to Florida International University. So he's now in college, right? And so along the way, um, I helped start Autism Speaks, um, which at the time was the largest, largest organization of its time, of its kind. The world really didn't know what autism really was. And being a strategist, I put in place the um, strategic plan for the organization. A key part of the plan was to build awareness. And then within a few years, we built universal awareness of um, autism. I helped build a school in New Jersey for autistic kids. We've started several nonprofit foundations to train clinicians and parents on how to work with autistic kids and so forth. So it started with Benjamin and my, Lori and I, what we believe in is we will never do anything just for Benjamin. Anything we do has to benefit the entire community. And that's why we've done so much in nonprofits for autism. Yeah, you know, we, we definitely need more awareness uh, in Vietnam for Down syndrome, autism, mm -hmm. My, my brother has a, a son who has Down syndrome, and I think that there's a, a lack of awareness in, you know, the public's, the way they, they view these sorts of um, mental conditions in, in humans. That's, it's a real problem in many parts of Asia, and that's why Lori and I here at Florida International University, we're working to build a new center to help um, people with special abilities, right? Um, they these individuals are not necessarily disabled they're just differently abled right mm. so benjamin for example um is never going to be a, a great writer he's not a great historian or any of that stuff he just has a great memory for example that we're still trying to figure out what to do and it spans different aspects of memory he has perfect pitch Right. You can play a note. He can tell you what it is. You can play the most obscure chords. He'll tell you what that is. He can, you can say that you were born on X date in 1947. It'll tell you that was a Tuesday, for example, because he memorizes and he can figure out calendars, right? He can tell you every flight that he has ever been on. He can tell you things that he can, he visually remembers, right? And so that's just a skill that if we can just figure out how to harness it, right, he will be a great contributing member of society. And we choose to emphasize and build upon strengths. We just don't even focus on the weaknesses. And unfortunately, society focuses too much on weaknesses and don't spend enough time on finding the strengths so that you can build upon it. I mean, just that mentality is a pathway to any sort of success for your child. Absolutely. A success for everyone. Them. Everyone. Yeah, because it doesn't place limitations. It just offers pathways to growing. That's right. That's right. I mean, I have great some I have great limitations of this, that, or the other, right? But guess what? I don't spend too much time worrying about that. I just focus on the things I'm good at and build upon it. Right. And that's that belief. I, I developed that by just working with 
people and just seeing what they're really good at, creating the environment to help them achieve based upon what they're good at. And the things they're not good at, who cares? Um, wanted to go back to uh, Fulbright. Why Fulbright and not other places, uh, other universities in Vietnam? Well, Fulbright is the first liberal arts university in Vietnam. Right. And through an act of, of the United States Congress and through great bilateral negotiations between the U.S. and the Vietnamese government, Fulbright University was established with great academic autonomy. And I think you need to start from there to be able to offer the, the liberal arts education that we started our conversation with, right? And I believe you need to have that liberal arts education to really jumpstart great academic pursuits. Yes, and I had President Tui on, and I'm a real big champion of Fulbright, and that's why I continue to sort of push, because I believe that. I believe in my heart of hearts that in order for Vietnam to grow, we need to have more academic freedom, academic expression, to just express our thoughts and be able to talk about growth and in ways that... Uh, that um, in the, I, I know there's a sensitivity to, to a lot of the, the political side, which I understand. And, I'm, you know, we can play with that and grow into it. But I think at the core, just being able to say, here's a place where we can begin to have conversation, that is vital to the growth of, of Vietnam. Yeah. I am less attuned to the political aspects yes. of this, right? But I am... 100% behind the notion that you need to have an integrated discussion of life, right? You need to have a conversation where the arts lead to a greater thinking, where a conversation about history leads to better understanding of where technology will take us, right? And if we're able to have this integrated conversation around different topics, that's how we will actually push the state of knowledge. That's how we'll push discoveries and so forth. I just don't think you can get there by having discipline majors that's based upon rote memorization because rote memorization is based upon stuff that's been learned in the past. What a liberal arts education, I believe all about the things that are yet unlearned that we need to go and learn. Yeah, and I, I really do believe that the ability for us to download this rote memory is around the corner, right? Uh, technology is probably going to allow us to kind of access data in ways that we can't understand yet. Of course, absolutely. I mean, I'm living proof of that. I mean, mm. I just don't, re I have a bad memory, right? I don't remember that. I mean, when was the last time you actually remembered a phone number, right? Yeah. Because in your phone, you just type, you just push a button, right? And as a result, it frees the mind to go and think and go and do other things because the rote memorization is being done by computers, by phones, by everything else for you. Yeah, this ability to tap into sort of how to um, figure out what we feel and make other people feel the empathy is not things that come from rote memorization. These are things that come from studying 
things of the past that happened culturally. And that's how we synthesize this, you know, these stories to get to a different way of progressing. Yeah. I must tell you though, that there is one thing about memory that I wish I had more of. It's just a memory for names and faces. I'm just so, so bad. Like I said, I have a bad memory, right? And therefore I just don't remember names. I need to meet somebody 10 times before I, and work with them, right? And so forth before I really remember people's names and faces. There's a condition. Um, I think Brad Pitt has it where it's an actual condition. I have another friend who has it too. He's met people over and over and over for many, many years and still can't remember yeah. their names. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like an, an actual condition that- uh, <laughs> I have to look that up. Maybe, and maybe I should go and get tested. Maybe I'm, I'm good diagnosed <laughs> condition. Gung, thank you so much for being so open today. There's so many things that I had on my list of questions, but you know, sometimes these, well, most times these interviews, um, it's the guest that really leads the charge on where we're going to go. Um, I had a lot of questions about pharmaceutical companies and Merck and, you know, uh, so many different paths about vaccines and, you know, the state of COVID today, you know, but I think we, we went down the, the path of um, uh, the liberal arts conversation and we went heavy on that. And I, and I'm very happy that you opened up and, and went down that, uh, that path. So Ken, thanks for having me today for this conversation. And if you um, want to have a different conversation, another conversation, that's, a, that's a, those other topics, maybe another time, be glad to come back. Yes, I would love to and uh, set something up uh, maybe uh, sometime later this year when your schedule permits and uh, we'll coordinate that. I, I really enjoyed the conversation today. Terrific. Thank you, Ken. You have a good day. And thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.